Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our service today. I'm Russell Kennebury, one of the elders here at, at Weymouth Community Church. Um, just welcome to all who are here and brave that cold air out there and, and those of you with us online as well. Let's take a moment of uh, silent prayer before the Lord and then we'll, we'll pray and, and get started. Our scripture reading this morning is um, Psalm 103, 6 through 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove his transgressions from us. As far as, as the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we just uh, thank you and praise you that you are just. Father, that you know us and that you know our inward parts. And as you are continuing to work in, the, in our inner person to, to make us, Lord, what you want us to be. We thank you that you don't hold your anger against us. Lord, we thank you that your steadfast love, Lord, continues to be poured out upon us. And such great love that is, that we can be called your child. We thank you and we praise you as we commit our hearts and our, t our worship to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.
I just want to cover a few announcements that we have. If you take out your bulletin, um, on that left-hand side of the inside page, you know, tells you our our weekly activities and and services programs or whatever you want to call them, ministries that we have throughout the week. Um, we uh, started our, our Garfield Edgerman snack collection so for over the next th through January 28th. So if any um, prepackaged individual snacks that you can bring, we can give those to Garfield for for their needs. We have our congregational meeting coming up on January 28th. Uh, for our meeting, uh, <clears throat> we'll vote on our um, or confirm. Uh, nominated elders, which are um, oh, if I can remember who they are <laughs> Tom Lazio, Jim Stevens, and some other guy <laughs> Russ Kennebrew. <laughs> Uh, so if you have concerns about any of those guys serving, you have the next couple of weeks to talk to them and, and try and resolve those issues. Um, we'll also be voting on our, our budget for 2024 and, and make some announcements about uh, our objectives for 2024. 2020, uh, new classes next week, starting the Tough Text classes are starting. And... Um, there's also uh, new members and friends directory that is available out on the counter as well. Um, I was thinking there was something else, but I can't think of it now. So if you think of it later, respond to it. <laughs> Um, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you and just praise you for your love for us. Father, as we come before you this day, as we hear the word that you, you are about to give us, we thank you and, and for it, Lord, that we will take it into our hearts and respond in, in a way that is appropriate to honor and glorify you. We do lift up those who are within our body, Lord, that are, that are hurting emotionally and, and physically. Father, we ask that you would uh, come upon them and in your presence that you would touch, Lord, that you would restore, and Father, that you would comfort. Lord, too, we lift up our, our situation here within our nation, Lord, just the strife that is going on, just a a conflict, and we submit to you and, and seek your peace, Lord, that hearts would turn to you. Father, for uh, just this, this world, that their conflict across this world, we seek, Lord, that, that those who are followers of yours, that you would come around them, uh, provide your protection, your comfort, your peace. May through their strife, they would bring honor and glory to your name as well. Father, that you would, they would see that and others would see that. Their persecutors would see that and turn their hearts to you. We thank you, Father, for your provision of our daily needs. We thank you for your resources that you make available to us. 
whether material or, or people or just your, your peace, we give thanks and praise to you. Lord, as we commit our time to you and our hearts to you this day, as we worship you, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand and sing another song. We'll do this a little differently than normal, though. Um, I'm just going to give us the, the chord, the, the, the key that we're in, and then we're going to sing a cappella together. So, no instrumentation. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever.
prayer. Father God, I just thank you for all these wonderful voices singing praises to you, Lord. Uh, I pray that uh, as we continue in our worship of you, that that our hearts would uh, would be loud in praise and worship to you, Lord. I pray that you would be with Pastor Chris as he comes to deliver your word. Um, Lord, I just thank you for his faithfulness to you and dealing with, through uh, through this little sickness this past week. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, you would be with him as he uh, as he comes to to teach us your word. Lord, I pray that we would be um, receptive and and, um, and and Lord, just grateful to to your word and to your servant um, Chris for delivering it to us, Lord. Pray all this in your name. Amen. The book of Micah in the Old Testament will be finishing off our uh, series here in the book of Micah. Micah is one of the, the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And in case you were worried after last Sunday, I thought this was going to be another coughing fit this week. I got a whole bag of these up here, right? So we can save Renee the trouble this week. So uh, we'll, we'll have that in case of emergencies. Um, so thank you as well for your, uh, your concern and your prayers this week as I was dealing with uh, sickness and COVID and all that fun stuff. But glad to be back, glad to be feeling a little bit better. Uh, I'm excited for what we have this morning in store here in Micah. And then, uh, God willing, when we gather next week, we'll start our new series in the book of First Peter. And so let me just say, as you're turning to the book of Micah chapter 7, that um, just to look ahead real quick, uh, our hope in starting the book of First Peter next week and starting this class on tough texts of Scripture um, is we think these things are, are timely, are helpful for us as, as believers, as a church living in the times that we're living in and the world that we're living in. Uh, it's important to be remembered what it means to, to live as exiles, how to handle God's word well. Uh, but we're not studying First Peter. We're not doing this tough text class on Wednesdays and Sundays, not just to grow in our own comfort or our own confidence with Scripture, but to also learn how to share it with others, learn how to share it with non-Christians, learn how to study it for ourselves so we can help other people study it, especially those living in the, in, in, uh, the confusion and lostness of, of life apart from Christ. So uh, we're excited for what's to come. We're also excited for what God has for us right now here in Micah chapter 7. We'll be looking at the, the end of the book here. So we'll be looking at chapter 7, starting in verse 8 through verse 20. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 8 of Micah 7. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. And my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock with your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf, 
They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. He will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Amen. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Gracious Father, as we come to your word now, we ask that what we know not, you'll teach us. What we have not, you'll give us. What we are not, you'll make us. For your son's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, growing up uh, in in the bedroom that my brother and I shared, we had those uh, name plaques on the wall. I don't know if you saw those or if you had those. You maybe pick them up in gift shops or truck stops or whatever. I don't know where you get them, but... um, you know, so I had one of these name plaques on the wall, and it said, of course, on the top, it said in big flowery letters, it said Christopher, which is, of course, my full name, named after Camp Christopher in Bath, Ohio, which is not too far from here. It said Christopher, and then underneath it had the meaning of my name, which is bearer of Christ. That's what Christopher means. It means bearer of Christ. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty good name plaque, right? It's a pretty good name. I mean, I'm okay with it. It almost makes up for being named after a camp. Not too shabby. Right now, so I grew up always seeing that on my wall, you know, Christopher, bearer of Christ, and, and I thought of that that if you know the prophet Micah, I don't know if they did this thousands of years ago, but if the prophet Micah had grown up with a name plaque on his wall, on his bedroom wall, then what it said, you know, in big letters, Micah across the top, and then underneath, when it said what his name meant, it would have said the phrase, "Who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh?" Because this uh, is what the name Micah means in Hebrew. It means who is like Yahweh or who is like the Lord. And if that sounds familiar at all, it's because we just read almost that exact phrase here in verse 18 of Micah chapter 7. In fact, the book of Micah here, it opens and it closes with this phrase, this phrase, who is like the Lord or who is a God like you. This phrase is is hinted at in verse 1 of the very first chapter. When we have Micah's introduction, when we're introduced to him as the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsha, Micah starts with his name, which means who is like the Lord. And then at the, the end of the, uh, the book, in, in chapter 7 and verse 18, Micah, he, he riffs on his own name and he says, who is a God like you? As he ends the book in praise. Because you see, throughout the book, Micah, he's been proclaiming God's case against his people. He's been promising judgment against the people of Judah for their sin, for their idolatry and injustice. But as we get to the end of the book, we see Micah, he turns to praise. He's led to praise God, to remember the truth that's contained in his own name. Who is like the Lord? There is no one like this Lord. There's no earthly ruler, no foreign oppressor or foreign idol that can compare to him. This is not just because God is, a Lord, is the Lord who brings judgment, but ultimately because he is the Lord who brings salvation out of judgment. 
That's been the overarching theme, the big idea of the book of Micah is that the Lord brings salvation out of judgment. And it's this idea, this truth that leads Micah to turn and and end the book praising God, praising the Lord. This is the truth that Micah turns to in these final verses as he decides to place his hope in the God of his salvation. And this is the truth that we need in the midst of our own darkness and failure, in the midst of our own fears and frustrations and disappointments, in our own struggles spiritually, our own struggles in the church or in the world. We need to remember this truth, this truth that will lead us to turn away from our own sin and turn away from our own idols and lead us to declare with joy, who is like the Lord? who brings salvation out of judgment. And so to see how God does this, how he brings salvation out of judgment, this morning we'll look at two things. We'll look at first the great reversal proclaimed by Micah in verses 8 to 13, the great reversal. And then secondly, we'll look at the gracious redemption promised in verses 14 to 20. So first we have a great reversal, and then we have a gracious redemption. So let's look first at the first half of the text at a great reversal here in verses 8 to 13. Because after grieving the coming judgment of God against Judah, uh, Micah, he surprisingly turns to the Lord in verse 7. He's been grieving the promise that God is going to send his people into exile. But then in verse 7, Micah says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. See, in contrast, in contrast with the people of Judah who are, who are filled with fear and distrust as they see the looming threat of the Assyrian Empire at their borders, Micah, he chooses to place his hope in the Lord. He chooses to turn and trust in the God of his salvation. He remembers that God is a God of salvation, not just a God of judgment. And so this leads him to remember and declare God's faithful character his gracious character. It leads Micah to promise what commentators refer to as a great reversal. Because what's happening here in verse 8 is Micah, he goes from addressing his own people to actually addressing his enemies directly. Enemies like uh, the Assyrians. Micah declares, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. And this here, it kicks kicks off this series of contrasts, a series of reversals in the text. Because Micah, he's speaking on behalf of God's people themselves. And he says, even though we fall, even though I fall, I will rise. Even though Jerusalem is going to fall under the weight of God's judgment and exile, even though he's going to use a foreign nation to cast them out, even though they fall, God, they are still going to rise. And then Micah goes on to say that even as the people sit in the darkness of God's judgment, God himself is also going to be a light to them. He's going to bring light into their darkness. And then look at verse 9. Micah knows that Judah, his people, they're going to bear the indignation of the Lord. They're going to bear the judgment, the discipline of the Lord. But even as they do so, even though they're going to bear his indignation, Micah knows that ultimately they're going to look upon his vindication. Indication is going to give way to vindication. They will be vindicated, justified by God himself. So how is this going to happen? How is this possible? When we look at the middle of verse 9, we see that God's people, they're going to bear his indignation for their sin 
until God pleads their case, until God himself executes judgment for them. And this is striking because throughout the book, God has been bringing his case against his own people. He has been like a a holy prosecutor, prosecutor, calling them out for their sins, showing them and promising judgment against them. But Micah says that, that even though God has done that, eventually God is going to turn and actually plead the case for his people. That eventually their prosecutor is going to become their defense attorney, their advocate. See, God's people, they had sinned grievously in their idolatry and in their injustice. And because God is holy, because he is good, because he is just, he couldn't ignore their sin. He couldn't turn a blind eye to it. He couldn't dismiss it. So he promised to bring judgment, to bring discipline against them. But Micah knows that this judgment, it's not the end of the road. It's actually an avenue for a great reversal. Because out of this judgment, God is actually going to bring salvation for his people. He's going to raise them up from their fallen state. He's going to bring light into their darkness. His indignation will give way to vindication. Like a loving father, God's judgment, his his discipline is not meant to destroy his children. His discipline is meant to correct his children. It's meant to turn their hearts away from their their foolish idols, from their own self-trust, and instead turn and trust in God alone for salvation. And when this happens, Micah says, when God's people turn and trust in the Lord alone, when they look to the Lord alone for salvation, then it will be their enemies who will see. It will be their enemies, those who mock them, who will themselves be trampled down in justice and shame. And when this happens, more reversals are going to take place. The walls of the Jerusalem that were once besieged, they're going to be rebuilt. The, the, the boundaries that were once encroached by foreign oppression are going to be extended. In that day, the nations who tried to destroy God's people, they're going to come from all over creation to join God's people. As God's worldly opponents are made desolate. And what we see here, what we see in these reversals and this promise at the end of the book of Micah is that as much as God's people have failed him, he will not fail them. He will not fail to be faithful to them, to his promises to them. The idolatry, the injustice of man are not enough to undo the faithful promises of God, to undo his faithful, perfect, gracious character. And that's important for us to see because all of us have also fallen into sin and idolatry and injustice. All of us are also lost in darkness. We too have failed to keep God's commands. We too live in selfishness and idolatry. God's case against his people is also his case against us. But the great reversal that Micah promises here, it's not just for the people of Judah thousands of years ago. This great reversal is a promise for us today, too. It's a promise that God is able to raise us up, even from the pit of sin and death. That God can bring light even into the heaviest darkness that we experience. That the the indignation we deserve for our sins will ultimately turn to vindication. That the one whose justice, whose indignation we deserve has actually worked to bring us vindication and justification. 
This is a promise for us that God is able to carry out for us a great reversal through a gracious redemption. That's the next thing Micah turns to in verses 14 to 20, a gracious redemption. Because starting in verse 14, Verse 14, Micah turns again. Instead of addressing his enemies, he turns and he addresses the Lord himself. He ends his prophecy with a prayer to God. He, he asks God, he says, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. He prays for God to shepherd his people, to restore them, to rescue them as he did in the past. And here, Micah, he, he invokes how God once delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. He declares in verse 15 God's promise that as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. See, back in chapter 6 in verse 4, the Lord himself reminded his people how he had brought them up from the land of Egypt, how he had redeemed them, he had purchased them from slavery. And then here in verse 15 of chapter 7, Micah is declaring God's promise to do it again to carry out a new deliverance, a new redemption, a new purchasing from bondage. That God is going to marvelously, marvelously and gloriously redeem his people again. He's going to once again purchase their freedom, as he did in Egypt. And in fact, as we read this section, we notice that this whole section here at the end of the book, it's filled with allusions, with pointers to the Exodus story. To the Exodus story. Micah asked God to shepherd his people with his staff. Just as Moses shepherded, as Moses led the people of Israel with his staff. Micah asked God to once again bring them fruitfulness in Bashan and Gilead, which were two of the first territories that the people of Israel conquered when they entered the promised land. He proclaims that the Lord will overcome the nations who oppose his people, just as he did with the Egyptians. In verse 19, Micah declares that the Lord will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, which reminds us of how God cast the armies of Pharaoh into the depths of the sea, of the Red Sea, as God's people walked across on dry land. In the heart of these allusions to the Exodus story, the reason Micah is able to make this promise of this gracious redemption, the heart of this is found in what he says in verse 18. Where Micah declares, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And here Micah he invokes his, his own name. He's also echoing, echoing another key part of the Exodus story. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is one of the key moments, one of the foundational moments, not just in the book of Exodus, in the entire Old Testament. Exodus 34, where what's been happening at this point in the story is that God has led his people out of slavery in Egypt. He has brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he has given them the law. But while Moses was up on the mountain giving them the law, the people had Aaron make for them a golden calf. And they worshipped this calf and praised it as the one who delivered them from Egypt. And Moses, when he got back down from the mountain, he saw the idolatry of his people and God brought discipline and consequences against them. But then ultimately, God relented from completely destroying his people through the mediation of Moses, and then he actually acted to restore his people. He gave them the law once again. He restores his covenant with them. 
And then at the end of all that, he called Moses up onto Mount Sinai once again in Exodus 34. And there the Lord passes by Moses. And he declares to Moses the, one of the most clear, uh, most powerful revelations of God's name, of his character in the entire Bible. He says in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, this is how God reveals himself to Moses, who God declares himself to be. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You see, there are a lot of ideas out there about who God is. A lot of different churches, a lot of different religions, a lot of different philosophies will tell you about who God is or what he's like or how you can meet God, how you can know God. Even philosophies of, of irreligion that believe in no God will tell you that you, are, you, are, you yourself are God, which you feel internally, which you believe and, and think internally. That is God. But if God is real, if he's truly almighty, if He is truly our creator, then the only way we can truly know him is if he reveals himself to us because we are finite and he is God. And in the Bible, in Scripture, we have this revelation of who God is. And who he reveals himself to be is far more surprising, far more awesome, far more wonderful than we could ever come up with on our own. He tells us that he is the Lord, the Lord, a God who is full of mercy and grace, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is not the God of legalistic religious systems. This is not the God of, of self-fulfillment and achievement. This is a God who is far greater, far more wonderful than we can ever imagine. The people of Israel saw this. They, they saw this that even after they had sinned grievously, grievously with the golden calf, even after the people had been delivered by God's hand from slavery, even after they embraced utter idolatry with the golden calf, God still worked to restore them. He didn't completely destroy them. He renewed his covenant with them. He brought them back to himself and he was ultimately faithful to them to bring them into the promised land to fulfill his promise to them because he is merciful and gracious. He is perfect and just, but he is also abounding in steadfast love. He is slow to anger. And this ultimate character of God, who he reveals himself to be here in Exodus 34 to Moses, a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands of generations. This is who he wants us to know. This is who Micah knows God to be. And this is why Micah is able to trust God, even in the midst of judgment and discipline. But in saying all that, in saying that God is full of steadfast love and mercy and grace, it doesn't mean that he is unjust. It doesn't mean that God will let the guilty escape. Because he tells Moses in Exodus 34 that he will visit the iniquity he will bring consequences for sin down upon not just the people who committed the sin, but on their children and on their children's children to the third and the fourth generation. But look at the number discrepancy there in Exodus 34. God says he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers onto the third and the fourth generation. But it says he keeps steadfast love for thousands, for thousands of generations. 
God's discipline, the consequences he brings forth for sin, they may affect his people. They may last for three or four generations. But his steadfast love is for thousands of generations. It's for countless generations, infinite generations. See, the God of the Bible, he's not ultimately revealed to us as a Lord who is just itching, just waiting for an opportunity to bring the hammer down. No, he is revealed to us as a Lord who is slow to anger, who is abounding in steadfast love, who is ready to forgive sins and transgressions, who is unendingly faithful to his people, to his promises, no matter how much we try and screw it up. This is who he has revealed himself to be. And this revelation of his character, of his mercy and grace, his steadfast love and faithfulness, this is the hope Micah has. This is what leads him to trust and to praise God, even as he grieves the sins of his own people, the coming discipline and consequence and exile for their idolatry. Micah knows that the people of Judah, that the consequences of their sins will be visited on them for a few generations with exile. But he also knows that God's steadfast love and his faithfulness will outlast that judgment that even exile will be used by God to carry out his faithful promises. Micah knows that God will once again be faithful to pardon the iniquity of his people because he had done it in the past. He had restored them in the past. So Micah knows he trusts that God will again pass over their transgression. He will again restore them. And this phrase here in verse 18, passing over, in that phrase we have one more allusion to the Exodus story. Because when God's people were slaves in Egypt, God sent ten plagues on the Egyptians to convince Pharaoh to, to lead, to set the Israelites free. And the final plague was the death of the firstborn. Before that plague commenced, God told the Israelites to kill a spotless lamb to spread its blood on their doorposts. So that when the angel of the Lord came to kill the firstborn in Egypt, the houses that had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, they were passed over. The firstborn were spared because the lamb had died in their place as their substitute. And so Micah promises, remembering the story of Exodus, he promises that God will once again pass over his people. That once again he will spare them from the ultimate death and judgment that they deserve. He will not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And so he will again have compassion on them. He will tread their iniquities underfoot. He will cast their sin into the depths of the sea. He will be faithful to Abraham and Jacob. He will be faithful to his promises. He will forgive and restore his people even as he sends them into exile. And so God's faithfulness in the past, the revelation of his faithful character in Scripture, they lead Micah to trust that a gracious redemption is coming. And Micah's hopes are ultimately fulfilled because a new Passover did come for God's people. Just as Micah promised in chapter 5. In chapter 5, he promised that a shepherd king would be born in Bethlehem who would come to uh, rescue a remnant of his people to shepherd the flock of his inheritance. And this shepherd king, he was born in Bethlehem. 
But in order to truly shepherd, in order to truly rescue his people, this shepherd king had to go and become the ultimate Passover lamb. This king who was spotless, who was without blemish, who had no sin or failure in himself, he went to the cross where his blood was shed for the sins of his people, where he died in our place as our substitute so that we could be passed over from the judgment that we deserve. See, Micah's hope was fulfilled. God's revelation to Moses was confirmed ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our shepherd king, our perfect Passover lamb. Because in Christ we see most fully, most clearly, how God is gracious and merciful, how he is abounding in steadfast love, how he is slow to anger. In Christ we see through his death how God was able to punish sin and pardon iniquity. In Christ, God is able to be compassionate even towards his unworthy people. He's able to be perfectly faithful to restore us, to carry out a gracious redemption for us. See, in Christ, God has made a way for our sins to be cast into the depths of the sea because Jesus bore them in himself. In Christ, God has made a way for us to be delivered out of bondage to sin and death because Jesus submitted to that bondage himself on the cross. God in Christ has brought salvation through the judgment of his own son at the cross. And so in Christ, God has brought us a gracious redemption. And through this gracious redemption, he has also worked for us the ultimate great reversal because Christ rose again in victory over sin and death. He fell, but then he rose He was submerged in the darkness of death, but then he rose to bring us the light of life. He brought ultimate vindication out of ultimate indignation. And this is our hope as believers, not in some idol or effort or achievement of ourselves, but in the risen Christ, our Passover lamb, our shepherd king. Because we know that since Jesus rose again, because he came back to life, he's able to plead our cause before the Father. He's able to be our perfect defense attorney, our perfect advocate, who brings us into God's family, who builds the walls of God's kingdom, who expands the borders of God's people. It's all wrapped up in Christ. Everything Micah is hoping for, everything he is trusting in, is fulfilled in the perfect person and work of Jesus. So this is ultimately Micah's hope, and this is our hope as well. Because you may be here this morning, and you may feel like the walls of your heart have been torn down. You may feel like the borders of your hope have been encroached. You may feel like you've fallen and you don't know how to get up. Like you're sitting in darkness and you don't know how to get out. You might feel like the enemies of sin and death are all around you. A temptation is within you, reminding you of your shame, of the indignation that you deserve. You may feel that way. You may feel like God is just a judge who is itching, who is waiting to bring the hammer down on you. You may feel like God is just a prosecutor who's going to throw the book at you. You feel like all your own efforts, all your own attendance at church, all your own things you've done in the community, all your own good works, that that none of them are enough. 
that your failure is too great or your struggle is too strong or your circumstances are too dire. You wonder how God could truly be almighty, how he could truly help you, how he could truly rescue you. And if you feel that, if you're in that, then I invite you to look to Christ. Look to Christ and consider the question, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? As you grieve your own sin, as you grieve your own circumstances, do you know who God really is? Who he's revealed himself to be in his word, in his son? Are you trying to figure that out for yourself? Are you trying to find God within yourself? Or are you taking his word for what it is? Are you accepting the revelation he has given us in Scripture, in Jesus, that God is the Lord who is merciful and gracious, who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who is perfectly just, but who is also in Christ able to pardon our iniquity, who is able to pass over our transgression, who is able to be far more merciful and wonderful and gracious than we ever could have imagined? Do you know that about God? Do you know that he is able to throw our sins into the depths of the sea because he already poured out his judgment upon Christ in our place? On his own son who gave himself as our perfect sacrificial lamb who rose again as our shepherd, as our advocate. Do you know that in Christ, God has brought ultimate salvation out of ultimate judgment? That there's no sin so great, there's no failure so deep, there's no darkness so heavy that God can't bring about a great reversal through his gracious redemption in Christ. Who is like the Lord? There's no other hope like this. There's no other God like this. You can't find this from any other religion, any other philosophy. You can't find this from your own efforts or affirmations or expressions. There is no other God like this, no other salvation like this, no other Lord who can bring salvation out of judgment, who can bring the restoration that we need. So do you know this Lord? Do you trust him? Do you look to him with hope, even in the midst of your own grief, your own fear, your own failure? Or are you still trusting in yourself, in your own performance, in other people or idols? This morning, friends, I invite you to hear the hope of Micah here. I invite you to trust, to turn away from your sin and idolatry and trust in Christ alone. I invite you to trust in the God who can bring salvation out of judgment. For who is like the Lord? Please pray with me. Almighty Father, we praise you this morning for there is no one like you. There is no one who brings us the the hope that you bring, the the redemption that you bring. There is no other way to, to see this reversal take place in our own lives, to be brought from death to life, from darkness to light. There is no other way apart from the grace, the gracious redemption you have brought us in Christ, in your Son. So help us to trust in you alone to turn away from the idols we've looked to this week or the efforts we've uh, trusted in to, to secure some sort of security. Help us to rest in your almighty power and your perfect grace and your steadfast love and faithfulness. 
Let that be what unites us as a church, what builds our walls together, not our own efforts or our own opinions or our own preferences. Help us to rest in Christ alone, for there is no one else like you. So we praise you and we trust you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's respond with one final song, so please stand and sing with us. again for being here and and as we go let's go with this word of benediction from the psalmist restore us O Lord God Almighty let your face shine that we may be saved amen go in peace